Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Axiom Principle. I'm your host, Dr. G. I hope you guys had a good last couple of weeks, that everything went well, and things are just oh so peachy. But um, let's get into the material this time, shall we? The uh, subject of today was the alternate forms of education. Now, I've heard an argument being presented that the debate is not the only form to disseminate information, that it's actually an inferior form and doesn't serve any purpose. It's a showboat or a, or a, I guess, a star style method of trying to get the word out, as it were. And uh, that is not at all true, of course, but these people believe it as if it was a universal truth that debate is not the most effective form of learning. To which I say, you're full of crap. And here's why. So we're going to go down all different forms of education and what suits their purpose and what does not. So let's start with actual formal education, the, the type that everyone thinks about, which is the dissemination of knowledge. Now, the formal education does have its purpose. In fact, its purpose is, is pretty straightforward. But it also deals with objective morality, or objective reality, rather, not morality. Um, in objective reality, you would have, essentially, certain types or certain subject matters of information which are not up for debate and not up for pursuit. In fact, this is one of the arguments you'll hear. It's not up for debate. Why is it not up for debate? Well, objective morality, uh, why do I keep saying that? Objective reality is definitely not up for debate. But what constitutes objective reality? Well, let's look at it from an easy angle, shall we? Mathematics has often been said to be the language of the universe. It is the form of logistics, the form of uh, what makes us intelligence, the fact that we can count and can tell the difference between one and two, speaks to our level of intelligence, at least, for as a species, because not everyone can. So, in this sense, the information that is easily disseminated, that is unarguable, is the information that is the objective reality. Mathematics being the easiest example of that, where reality is painted by numbers. You, you go through, um, you go through algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, so on and so forth. Each one of these have formulae and numerical uh, connotations, which do not have a debate around them. The order of operation, for example is undebatable because it is to which the method that our entire infrastructure of all technology functions in fact most people don't know this but well except for i guess programmers that um all of your applications everything that was written that is technology that is that is um stuff that you use from facebook to twitter to word 
you, you name it. Even your video games are programmed this way. In fact, video games are kind of a unique twist on the way this is used, but it is algebra. All of it is algebra. They use uh, numerical constants. They make loops with a uh, top and end cap. Unless you're a video game, then it's an open loop. The way that uh, select case is what one of the frameworks works is you got a multiple choice and you must choose between one and four and it all depends on user input in the case of twitter for example it captures your tweet assigns it to your identifier um, and your identifier your user id has actually probably got a, numer a numerical back uh, value in the background on its massive database which stores your tweets and the database itself is numeric and all of it actually when the higher level of algebra is being deconstructed to its simplest form it is binary a set of ones and zeros each one and each zero is an on off switch that would increase or decrease a number a numerical value in fact you can count one to a hundred using binary it's actually rather simple but uh, that's just one obvious form where you're looking at mathematics as the core of all technology. Mathematics also lives in physics, where they try to construct what's going on in the universe using precise numerical um, measurements. They, they measure the speed of light, for example, and then use that to calculate distance. How long it took for a star's light to reach us, for example. The, the type of information there is very static. It's very real. Uh, there's no getting around it. As much as you'd want to convince somebody that 2 plus 2 equals 5, reality steps in the way. 2 plus 2 can never equal 5. And yes, there's philosophical arguments to say that 2 plus 2 in actual reality equals 5. But I submit to you that you're barking up a postmodern tree, and it's absolutely pointless to try and do something so idiotic and stupid. But getting on to the point that in education, certain information can be objectively true and should be passed down. One of the harder subjects to try and do this to is probably history because history is very complex there's a lot of moving parts there's a lot of um, individuals involved so this type of information is static because it's already happened there's nothing you can do to change it but perception of what happened can vary between historian to historian or even individual to individual depending on the reader and that person's perception of the now influences how and what they write of the past. Take, for example, um, Tariq Nasheed and his efforts to rewrite history in a, in a different view, if you will. He has done a video series, I guess you could say, of a historical view that the black... Um, people from Africa actually were 
a lot more advantageous and a lot of the re man i can't speak this morning a lot of the leaders and and rulers and priestly castes were actually black people and they were subjugated or oppressed or killed or something like that and uh, it's always the white person that kills them by the way Sus suspected white supremacists but in his lens um, he wants to demonstrate the pride of an entire race which is a foolish thing to do in the first place, but it is nonetheless his lens that is trying to write history to his particular tastes. This happens in all sorts of other history, too. In fact, it's notorious that once a king took over, or once a conqueror, rather, took over a region, they would destroy all information of the previous regime, or at least as much as they could, to try and wipe out all, uh, from all of history that that regime ever existed. Of course, that turned to be almost entirely impossible, because every time that would happen, somebody would remember, somebody would write it down, and they would be from an outside source. They would not necessarily be a part of that uh, regime they would hide it they would keep idols and hide those you know um, a good example is that most people don't know that the Jewish tradition used to be a uh, polytheist tradition they used to have multiple gods they had a female and a male god and somewhere around three to four thousand years ago they dropped all of them and went with Yahweh which is a significant step, but they did have idols and whatnot of these other gods for some reason. And it seems to be a little bit of an Egyptian influence, maybe. Um, and that kind of thing, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how the more we dig up out of our past, the more we try to understand it. But it's a very static thing. The past cannot be changed. So this should be a part of objective morality. However, it seems to be that a lot of people want to treat history as subjective morality, or there I go again, subjective reality. Meaning that once they dig things up, this is how things are. Or they do a test or study or something like that and look up into history and how things were and say, no, that's really not how it was. This is how it was. And they'll rewrite history to suit their narrative. Another thing that you'll see in, in historical viewpoints or historical narratives is let's say that somebody wrote a massive speech and of that speech only certain parts really fit the narrative of whatever this person's trying to say they take that narrative and then they condense it into the pieces where they want to say something and everything else gets thrown out because it's just too wordy or it's whatever the reasoning was. They do so. Never knowing that they actually changed the entire meaning of what that person was saying. Some people try to do this in, in an effort to be concise and clear and try to, you know, it's inspiring these words. Or at least they found them inspiring. But they're diluting the message that was being delivered. Um, the easiest example of this, which is relatively benign, but 
nonetheless, it's still been done, is the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. People see the words on the walls and think, that was his message, that was what he was saying. Well, no, if you read the rest of his works, you know that that's not what he was saying. And also, the entire placard, everything that was written on the walls of the Jefferson Memorial, are incorrect. They are cherry-picked phrases from a larger context, a larger writing set. Because it wasn't just one letter, I believe, it was several, if I remember right. And in history, you see that done quite a bit all over the place. You'll see cherry-picked quotes, connotations that weren't really said, um, words that weren't really there, or some that were there, but they took out just the context so that you wouldn't understand the rest of the, the wording. Another easiest, more current example is the Martin Luther King speech, since this is Black History Month. The Martin Luther, the gosh dang it, the Martin Luther King speech has uh, the most famous quoted verse of all time, in my opinion. This very well could be true because it's used so much. But the "I Have a Dream" speech. In fact, people probably already had that in their head prior to me even saying anything. Because it is, in fact, the most known speech in all of U.S. history. That one and probably four scored seven years ago. But anyways, the only part that people remember is, I have a dream that my four daughters may someday be raised up to be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. People remember that piece of it for sure. and may or may not include that he was talking about his children and not necessarily the other people, which is interesting that he would put it that way. But nonetheless, people remember that piece um, in a variety of different ways, and not all of which are exact word-to-word when they remember it. So, objectively, the event did occur. But subjectively, people remember what they only wanted to remember because it's uh, it impacted them or influenced them in some manner or some way. And so this, uh, this entire debate, whether uh, some... Their, whether how he said it or what he said was influenced, if you read the rest of his speech, you could see exactly what he was talking about. In fact, you could listen to the whole thing on YouTube right now if you so chose. It's it's out there. The um let's get let's get on to the alternate forms, what what the whole point of this discussion is. Or this lecture rather, because that's exactly what I'm doing. If you look at education, there are certain things, certain sections of knowledge, which are objectively true. Some people want to challenge these, and so they'll open it up for debate. Um, getting to the more messy sec section of, of this particular thing, you saw 
biology be under assault for the last 20 or 30 years? Well, in biology, we have a theory of evolution, of the origination of humans, as it were. And this origination apparently is up for debate by creationists. They seem to think that they can propose an alternative theory without ever actually testing their theory, thus making uh, the assault on it under debate. Entertainingly enough, there have been several debates over the, over the course of the last 10 or 15 years or so. Each one of them, the theist never actually won. When they tried to go down the realm of biology, the evidence was clear. When they tried to go down the realm of cosmology, the evidence was clear. The, the numerical tests have been done. A lot of the science and the reason why they rely on a quantitative method, a numerical or statistical method, is because it's hard to refute numerical value. When you crunch it down to a number, and rather than a opinion, which is qualitative, in a sense, or a theme, as you would put it in qualitative. When you crunch it down to a numerical value, it's really hard to argue against something that's numerically driven. You have to look at the method next to see if it's actually valid or not. So most of the time it is, some of the time it isn't. It all depends on the researcher and what they were trying to do. But in biology, it's pretty cut and dry. Like, they are able to dissect multiple animals, look at them, compare them to one another, and find out that there's a lot of differences, or a lot of differences in a lot of them, and similarities in the other. And then we had the invention of genetics, and we were able to deconstruct the very cell that all, dry, all life exists upon, and find out the core elements and the way it works. We're still discovering much of what a human is like the genome project for example mapped out all of the human genome i remember that project starting almost 20 years ago and uh, they just barely finished and that's with the aid of technology just rapidly increasing on top of it technology was developed to meet the demand it was amazing but anyways you would have creationists come out and try to debate this subject as if it was up for debate, as they like to put. Some subjects are not up for debate. 2 plus 2 does not equal 5. But in biology, what they're saying is the, the whole tree of uh, species, the whole mapping of um, all the different species around the world, the... Um, creation and driving force behind all life is in fact a farce and it really just happened within a shorter time span but here's the problem you can put that up for debate you go right ahead and put that up for debate if you're going to debate it you need to come up with evidence you need to bring evidence with you so whenever anybody ever says that we should debate the subject it's because they have an opposing theory that they want to put forth. That's fine. Put that theory forth. And bring evidence with it. If you have no evidence to support your claims, no one's going to believe you. 
We are now an evidence-driven world. In fact, you'll hear it a lot when you talk to the people that are trying to say some things are not up for debate. They claim they have all the evidence they would ever need, and it's just around you, and you just need to look. So too does the creationist say they have all the evidence they'll ever need, and all you have to do is look around you and look at the inner eye and look at yourself and look at the miracle of birth and life, and there's all the evidence you'll ever need. Yet that's really not evidence. Now that's the point, I think. And the further we get down this, the more we discover that some of the people that are saying it's not up for debate or some subjects are better suited to be taught than discussed. So how do you determine which is more suitable for which topic? Which one is best for lectures and testing? I would assume, I would imagine, the ones that were up for testing and um, exploration are the ones that are not objective. They're not cut and dry. History, for example, has multiple interpretations of the same event. Which one's true? Are they all true? Are they all separate and different? Can you be claiming that you're a historical biologist and have the right perspective on biology, but you study history? Does that make you a biologist? Doesn't seem like it does. But does that give you the right to open the subject matter, say it's not up for debate, but then change its contents. And that is where I'm going to get to the crux of this whole point for the axiom principle. The, there are some people that open up, say, biology is probably the most prevalent right now, and psychology being right up there too, that some of the groups come up and say that these things are not up for debate. The, the studies have been done. The case has been closed. Yet, when you look into their data, the studies that they're doing are junk. The data is not in. And alternative tests have been done to prove the opposite. The most prevalent one is the one that was done in, uh, I want to say, Scandinavia. Or was it Norway? It was one of the uh, most liberal societies out there. And they went and t tested um, individual choice in uh, societal functions. I guess you could put it that way. And the data came back saying that if you leave people to their own devices, they will choose what they want to do more prevalently than if you were to step in and force somebody to go into something they don't want to do. So you look at the uh, rates of, of marriage, I guess you could say, is one of them. And you'd find if people are left their own devices, they, they tend to get married more in this particular section. Um, I'm kind of 
opening up. I'm trying to say that they're choosing to have children more and the women are choosing to stay home more in this particular area, um, which is counter to the narrative that we're being presented, that women want to work as hard as a man and do the same things as a man, even though the data in pretty much every open and liberal society says the opposite. I mean, if you look at the trends and you look at the people in positions and you look who who's where, the interesting thing is you have a narrative being presented. People are saying that this is not up for debate. Yet clearly it is because no one really knows why that is. There's one side that has a theory blaming it on um, evolutionary tendencies or evolutionary psychology. And then you have the other side that's trying to claim that everything is not as it seems, but at the same time they're denying evolution because that's what would be required for their theory to be accurate. And this is why I brought up evolution in the first place compared to creationists. Because evolution did happen. It's not a matter of how it happened, rather, or where it started is still not known, right? But the fact that we've changed over 100,000 years or that uh, all species have changed in a matter of speaking over 100,000 years or even a million years says a lot to the diversity of life and how things are. But when we apply that to other subjects, people have a knee-jerk reaction because it's an uncomfortable thing. So you have the argument that it's not up for debate. Because if they were to expose their ideas to a debate, they probably wouldn't do so well. And I think that is the crux, the problem with their argument, is the claim that things are not up for debate um, and what ends up happening is their own belief structure gets questioned, gets put into question, and they end up looking foolish. And that could be the point. Creationists, however, I, I'd have to give it to them. I have to contend with them that they took a subject matter that has been well-grounded. I mean, once genetics was invented or discovered they evolution had been just set in stone at that point it is a fact it happened the more we discover through genetics the more we find that we're all kind of connected all the way down to plants it's kind of crazy and but creationists wanted that debate open science and scientists were all willing to say yeah go ahead Present your ideas, and we'll make you look foolish to do so. And they did, from multiple different angles. Even the moral arguments for their existence came under scrutiny, but their actions spoke louder than their words. And those debates were, uh, <laughs> well, let's just say they were they were a sham. It was hilarious to watch some of these, and every time the religious person, in my opinion, ended up looking the fool. It was it was very entertaining. But a lot of these would come out and they would debate over 
moral subjects because they had lost to the ground in the biological subjects, the creationist, the building and the first mover arguments and stuff like that and physics proved that they just didn't know physics is really what it came down to. Well, the new wave of social justice had learned that lesson and said, we don't want the debate because they will look foolish like the creationists. In essence, what they're doing is taking a, a known evidence fact, a something that is not up for debate, literally. Literally. Something that we know to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt. The, the data's in, the science has been done. We know evolution happened. And then they'll try to deconstruct that very notion, that very opinion, into bite-sized pieces to where they could find it vulnerable to attack. But then what they didn't do is take that theory of theirs and open it up for debate. No, what they did instead was go down a scientific route and try to create methods that would suit their narrative. They tried to use um, the same style and same methods that science uses, so uh, journal articles, publications, and so forth, to create their grand narrative, to publicize their opinion. This has worked to influence many people, but it's not worked to convince pretty much most of the scientific community. And the reason why it didn't is because they proposed a theory, they tested their theory within their own methods, and found their own conclusions. But in a peer review and under scrutiny, um, from those in the same or similar fields, it was found wanting. It was lacking integrity of their data. It was not a scientific analysis at all. Um, I think in one of my YouTube uh, lecture, I guess, 20-minute rants, I covered the gender studies degrees and the, then their studies of autoethnographic studies. Um, and anybody that says a study says, basically, is in that particular YouTube video. Um, and they'll take these as evidence, but they're not really evidence of anything but one's own bias. And one of the reasons they constantly want to shut down anything that would refute their claims is because I think they know that those claims that they're making are not true. And if they were to come under review of somebody that disagrees with them, it would be shown that it is not true. The most notorious example of this, and one that happened recently, is the Kathy Newman versus Jordan Peterson debate, where Kathy Newman went along her feminist rhetoric, um, the wage gap she tried to hire, uh, hammer home, for example, and it was demonstrably false. The data was in. People have studied it. People have done a multi-factor 
varied analysis of it to determine why and what's going on there and why something of a pay gap between men and women exists in general and uh, discovered why. And it came down to personal choice rather than sexism or rampant barriers to success or some such nonsense. Um, I did a backing of this when I went over a uh, study that was done in leadership in particular about um, behaviors as a self-concept, basically. You're talking about uh, stereotyping the male and female uh, archetype, archetype or ego, and then um, doing a comparative analysis from the workers saying uh, whose work group performance is good and whose is not and uh, determining what behaviors are best suited for that. That type of study is a demonstration of challenging one's perceptions that there's a wage gap, there's an earnings gap, there's women that are missing in this leadership position and so on and so forth. And why? Well, it turns out that they're not very good at it. And it's just because of the way women are. They're, you know, they're more amicable, for example, on general. Well, that's the problem. They don't like generalizations as well. Well, then how do you measure a large population without making generalizations? Well, the thing is, the reason why a good study uses statistical analysis over qualitative analysis or a uh, themed base analysis is because they're trying to get down to the root of an issue. So you would have a group of 10,000 women take a survey and the survey would be carefully crafted as to not push the um, participant in one way or another. And the end result would give you a distribution, a curve and that curve in the middle would be the average person. You would have outliers, of course, but then you would have the core. People prefer. When you make a broad generalization, if it's backed up by data, it's not a generalization that's a bad thing. It's a accurate generalization. And that's, that's part of the problem. When, when you put these subjects that people say that are not up for debate, and there's been studies done, there's data's come in, you have this data in your head, or you have it on reference or whatever, and then you debate them, and they are found wanting. It's because the reason they wanted uh, not to be up for debate is because they wanted their narrative to be true, and they want other people to buy into their narrative because it makes them powerful, makes them popular, makes them... Um, profitable. Thus is the problem of an ideological position. The alternative form, getting down to the point, the debate in general, the whole purpose of debate, the whole reason it exists, is to take two opposing views and determine which one has more validity. The only reason you would oppose this is either you're ideologically ideologically trenched in your belief, you won't move from your ideological position, or it's a subject which under something should not be debated. 
2 plus 2 does not equal 5. Now keep this in mind that the positions of things that are not under debate is very few and far between. All of it is mathematical. Usually where math is concerned, those subjects are not under debate. And no, I do not mean statistical analysis. I mean algebra. I mean calculus, geometry, physics. The things which we test with precision are not necessarily under debate. However, what we do with this knowledge can and should be under debate. Actionable consequences should be debatable. Excuse me. And uh, yawn there. So you find that the position of debate being lambasted but it has purpose. We have philosophy in mind when we think of debate because that's where it originated. Socrates was well known for saying he knows nothing. And the purpose of debate was to question the person who claims to know something. And he wants to know what that person knows. So therefore he'll ask him a barrage of questions to determine what that person knows. There's a new form of this called street epistemology. Which does kind of the same thing, um, but it questions the person's belief, and perhaps your belief will change, and perhaps not. But the point of it was, is, and was, and will be, I guess, to take a person's belief and challenge that belief, because they probably have never had it challenged. This, too, is another reason why people don't want things under debate, because it will, in fact, challenge their beliefs and challenge the beliefs of everybody in the audience. Anybody that's listening. The whole point of that is to to uh, take a subject which may be subjective in nature and determine which side has the better position, which side has the data, which, which side has the moral argument even. As much as morality is subjective and there are certain objectionable truths within morality, um... But that's an interesting conundrum by itself. Are those subjects not up for debate? Just because somebody's feelings might get hurt? I find, I find the old notion of s certain subjects not up for debate kind of contrary. Uh, if you don't challenge your perceptions, then how do you ever know that you hold the truth? But I can see the relative position on the opposite side where no, I'm not going to challenge mathematics. It's not up for debate because literally that's how everything works in the world. And it's been such a successful thing for us to invent that there's no reason to debate it. Math works in a variety of different ways. But this leads me to another, I guess I can plug them type thing. And that is, uh, there's a group out there that is specifically dedicated to debate. And instead of bringing on some random uh, professors or 
crazy social justice people or anybody that has an ideological position, they bring on experts in the field of each side and put forth their arguments. And they'll debate. Whoever's up for it will do it. Intelligence Squared is their name, and they have had magnificent debates across the nation, across the world. I've seen them from the UK, uh, Australia, America, so so forth. Any basically anywhere that has a Western civilization, I've seen Intelligence Squared do a debate. And their debates, in particular, they take on the perfect type of cadence. They take on an audience. They uh, allow the audience to vote. They look for influence because that's the point of debate to determine who's right and who's wrong. They take the measurements uh, before and after. They have very regulated uh, speech as well. So it's open and free speech, but within a regulated, I guess, construct, you can call it, where it's classical debate, two opening statements, uh, two follow-up statements, Q&A, closing statements, vote. And you vote before and after. And then what? whoever has the largest difference wins. There's a couple that I posted on my Twitter feed a long time ago, um, earlier last year. Some of them were social justice concepts and questions. And they got destroyed demonstrably within these debates. It was pretty shocking to see and hilarious to see. But I can see, I can tell... When the audience lost their interest and you lost that person or people during the debate. And there are certain rules that you should never break when you're on a panel or up for discussion or anything like that. First is never attack your audience because the moment you do, you lose them. Second is never attack your opponent. Once you do, you lose the argument. And... The third is you better have data to back up your bullshit or else you look like a fool. And those three things are the most important things to a debate. The problem with those that say that things are not up for debate in this particular context is they do all three of those things. If they're put into a situation where they are debating, they'll, they'll break those cardinal rules and thus lose. Rightly so. So I, I leave you with a, a follow-up thought. Those that say that certain subjects are just not up for debate and there's alternative forms, uh, such as uh, education being one of them, and formal education meaning uh, lectures and so on and so forth, why would they want that over a debate? And I think the answer to that is a little bit more sinister than people like to think. When you go and hammer ideas into somebody's head, let's take mathematics, for example, because that's probably one of the most common ones that's hammered into people's heads. Um, when you're learning math, you're teaching somebody a way and mode of thinking. You're teaching them a numerical value system. You're teaching them um, how to count how to do algebra, uh, order of operation, you name it, right? You're teaching them math, a core and beautiful subject that has no refutation. It's very solid. 
why would you want to do that with something, say, less rigid in its obvious use and objective reality? And the answer is, you want to indoctrinate them. You want to go unopposed. Because if there is no opposition to your position, then the only thing is acceptance or rebellion. But unfortunately for universities, they now force you to take a required gender studies class or a required um, women's studies class or racial studies class or whatever the hell you want to call it. And so in those classes, nothing is up for debate. You're there to listen. You're there to learn, as they put it. But you're not really learning, are you, at that point? If the data has been done and the studies have been done in their location, in their particular field, then they would have the data to back up their claims. They don't present any data. They don't present any claims. They present a dedicated form of doctrine. This is also why the creationists want to bring um, their particular subject matter back into school. I, I don't know how many of you follow this, but if you heard from a creationist that you should teach the controversy is the theme or the um, argument that they put forth that they want their of pandas and people book put into school. They want kids to learn that there's an alternative um, hypothesis. It's not even a theory. Hypothesis to evolution. And this hypothesis is creationism, that things were created and designed for a reason. And who's that designer? Who's that creator? Ask that question. But that would require debate. You should not be asking questions when it comes to formal education. You're there to listen and learn, not ask questions. That is the point and crux of this whole thing. If they want to have a debate, they would open, an, open a dialogue because they'd be able to prove their point. They don't. They want to have this required. They want to teach this in college. They want to teach this in high school, even junior high. And they don't want that open for debate. They don't want it open for discussion. Why? When thoughts and ideas go unopposed, you're left with an indoctrinated population. And that's kind of the point. When you have no opposition in a classroom, in education sense, things that are not up for debate... You just listen and believe. And if you're an impressionable youth, it gets crammed down your head. If you're a rebellious, rebellious youth, like I was, you're not going to believe that shit. If it doesn't make sense, you throw it out. But that's kind of the entertaining point, I guess, of this whole thing. The, the alternative forms to education. There's teaching is what they usually lean on. And this is better suited for that. No, it's really not. Have you proven your case yet? Is it demonstrably true? Is it demonstrably a fact? Has your multivariate analysis been done? Chances are that's a no. Chances are you don't know what the hell you're talking about. 
chances are in a debate you'd look at like an, a fool because your data would not be behind you. Your arguments would be unfounded and unsound. And the eventuality would be another Kathy Newman. You would look like an idiot on stage in front of somebody that knows what they're talking about. I'm going to cut this one a little bit short. Usually I go for a full hour. Um, but there's not a whole lot of subject matter in this particular subject. Essentially, the only thing that I can point to is when you talk about not having things up to debate, it means that your ideas cannot hold up to scrutiny. Your philosophy will not hold up against somebody else that who has an opposing philosophy. If they can argue better than you, for example, then you're going to look like a fool. Maybe you're right, actually. Maybe you have a good point. But the person you argue against has a better point. You look like an idiot. Um, in my YouTube series, for this particular one, I'm going to go over some sophistry. Um, they're really, really entertaining some stuff in there. And some psychological defense mechanisms. Is I'm going to do a couple series on that. Um, I wrote a bunch of blog posts back two, three years ago regarding these. So I'm just going to video them essentially, but that's uh, kind of what you have to look out for, and I'll cover that in another day, hopefully to get somebody on, a guest on, I'm, I got a couple ideas for a guest, and cover some sophistry, some really entertaining stuff in that area, but that's something you would see in a debate, and no one wants to have those, because sophist arguments are weak arguments. But anyways, that's all I have time for. Beware the person that uh, says subjects are not up for debate, especially when they're talking about relative subjects of sociology or psychology. Um, some of them are indeed up for debate because we just don't know what's going on. And you present a theory and then say, no, you can't debate that theory. Chances are your theory is pretty weak. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, sorry for it being a couple days late. Um, I had swore to never use their dial-up um, software that they have on their site because the audio quality was atrocious. It was disgusting, and uh, I demand higher quality of my own stuff, so I'm not going to do that to people. Um, check me out on YouTube. Um, it, my channel is The Axiom Principle. You can look up Zergbait200 and probably find me too until they allow me to name and brand my own channel which uh, I had once upon a time, and then they decided to strip that from me. Thank you, YouTube. Um, I put a lot of more satirical kind of uh, witty stuff up there. Um, well, actually, I think I'm just becoming a boring person, to be honest. I used to be so very snarky and kind of an ass, but that's dissolved, I think. I still got a little bit in there, but I, I've learned to hold my tongue in favor of not pissing anyone off. Call it the office political me, if you want. But at any rate, thank you for joining me tonight, or this morning, or whenever you happen to listen to this. I hope you found some interesting insight into why somebody would say it's not up for debate. Um, I would immediately question why it's not up for debate, but that's just me. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time.